So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. I started doing that for this graphics company. A light bulb went off in their head and they're like, oh, okay, we get it now. But, you know, it it still took me time to get them comfortable with being uncomfortable and letting go of the control. Because in order to grow, you have to let go of the control. And you're never going to grow the company bigger than the owners. You got to grow the owners too. You can't just grow the company. You got to grow their personal development because otherwise you're not, they're going to stop it. Oh, that's such a good point. Okay, I know we're almost out of time. I want to ask one more question. There's been so many failures. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Michelle Seiler-Tucker, another person passionate about mergers and acquisitions and entrepreneurs actually getting what they should out of their companies. Michelle, can you tell us about the book? Absolutely. I love to. (laughs) So the book, I'm very proud of the book. This is my third book that I've written called Exit Rich, um, endorsed by Steve Forbes, forward written by Kevin Harrington, the original Shark on Shark Tank. And Sharon Lecter is my co-author who wrote Rich Dad Poor Dad with Robert Kiyosaki. She's a five times New York Times bestselling author. Plus, she's written several books in the Think and Grow Rich Napoleon Hill Foundation. Plus, she's a CPA, a financial literacy expert, and she's been the advisor to many different presidents. And her husband is an intellectual property attorney. So what's really nice about Exit Rich is it has my 20 years of experience. I've personally have sold over 500 companies, but my firm has done over a thousand. And so we have a tremendous amount of experience buying, selling, fixing, growing businesses. But she sprinkles in, you know, what she calls a mentoring corner after every chapter from her perspective, from her husband's perspective. So it's really, really good. Plus, we got some really great testimonials from Brian Tracy, uh, Mark Victor Hansen, Tom Hopkins, Jack Canfield, Les Brown. I'm sure you've heard of some of those names, right? (laughs) Yeah, actually, Brian just reached out to ask to come on the show. So he's coming on soon to talk about his newest book. Wonderful. I was on a podcast. I was actually on a Zoom call with him for Sharon Lecter's birthday last week. That's so fun. Yeah. And I saw him not too long ago. I saw him at an event in California. Well, it's been a year ago, right before COVID. <laughs> Our listeners will know that I've been talking a lot about how this year we're going to have a bit more of a theme of how can entrepreneurs build a sellable business. So when your team reached out, asked if you could come on the show, I was like, yes, this is perfect. We've totally been going on this theme. This is great. So can you can you start with just some of the regrets that business owners have when they haven't prepared for an exit early enough? Yeah, of course. I mean, the regrets are pretty significant and, you know, really devastating because 
entrepreneurs, you know, especially baby boomers, they pour their heart, their soul, their energy, their money <laughs> into building their business. And many of them have made huge sacrifices along the way. You know, I just talked to an entrepreneur the other day whose business we're selling. He's like, Michelle, I haven't had a vacation in nine years. Another one I'm working with said, Michelle, I've never been to my kids' play or, or games or anything. So it's really devastating when they are forced to sell for pennies on the dollar, close their business, or even worse, have to file for bankruptcy. Because when you file for bankruptcy, you're typically going to lose not just your business assets, but you'll lose your personal assets too. Yeah. And that's and that's because most business owners commingle funds, or they take out a personal, they sign a personal guarantee, or they take out a loan against their house. So the business landscape has really changed dramatically. And like I said, it's it's really detrimental to a business owner if they can't sell their business and retire rich. You know, so many of them are having to go back to work. So many of them are having to sell their business or go through bankruptcy and go back to work for somebody. It's sad. It is. And so when you think about kind of the sweet spot, these 500 businesses you've sold, what, what's kind of what's kind of the typical range of, of exit value on the kind of businesses you're working with? Yeah. So when I first started my career 20 years ago, my before this, I did franchise sales, franchise development, franchise consulting. I sold smaller businesses. Now that our business size that I I work on, not my company, but that I work on is 10 million and up. So right now we've got a company we're working on for 75 million. We've got another one we're working on at 60 million, another one at 30 million. So 10 million and up. Kind of that so that kind of 10 to 75 range. Uh-huh. Or up. Yeah. Yep. Great. Sorry. Or up. <laughs> yeah. So tell us, yeah, give us a preview on the book. So Exit Rich. We, sure. Yeah. So some Exit of the main, Rich some is of the all main about points. not exiting poor. <laughs> <laughs> it's all yeah. about not exiting poor. So let me just give you a little history because I don't know how familiar you are with the business landscape these days or actually before the pandemic. So when I wrote my first book in 2013 called Sell Your Business for More Than It's Worth, I did the research back then and realized that, you know, 85 to 95% of all startups will go out of business. I mean, that's common knowledge, right? You know that. I know that. We all know that. However, you know, these last years, as I've been driving around all over the country, I see this strip center closed down. This business went out of business. That business went out of business. And I did the research again for Exit Rich and realized that the business landscape has actually flip-flopped before the pandemic. So now it's only 30% of startups will go out of business. Only 30% of those startups from one to five years. However, out of 27.6 million companies, those businesses have been in business 10 years or longer. 70% of those businesses will go out of business. 70 Seven zero. I know you're making a face. I mean, small business is a backbone of our economy. There's 30.2 million businesses in the United States employing over half the U.S. workforce. It is a backbone of our economy. And like I said earlier, many of these business owners are going to be forced to sell them for pennies on a dollar, close their business or file bankruptcy. And that was before the pandemic. Right now, we got 10,000 restaurants that are going to close in the next week, you know, so it's pretty scary out there. And that's really why I wanted to write Exit Rich, because according to Steve Forbes, eight out of 10 businesses will not sell. Eight out of 10. That's pretty significant, too. Now, look, I don't want to be all, you know, bad news, bad news. But, you know, there is good news out there because there are a lot of buyers. There's five different types of buyers. Private equity groups are one of them. Five different types of buyers. There are a lot of buyers out there for good businesses. There's actually more buyers for good businesses than there are good businesses to sell. 
The key is planning your exit and planning it early, planning it from day one that you start a business or buy a business. The biggest mistake that business owners make is they call me up and say, Michelle, I got to sell because I have, you know, just diagnosed with cancer or I just had this sweet little old lady that called me not too long ago and said, my husband dropped out of a heart attack. I need you to sell his business. And then I started taking her through a series of questions, no employees, subcontractors, it's a construction company, been in business 35 years. He has nothing to sell. Very sad, right? And that's what happens. And you know, so, I, so I think about this, like when I was at Citigroup on M&A, right? Mm -hmm. They're, they're, people are so busy perfecting the art of selling their service, selling their product. And they, they don't get, they don't get pushed into having to learn the sell skill set of selling their whole company. And they put it off and they, they tell themselves some anecdote about some friend who sold and they, you know, what, what do you think the resistance is to started starting exit planning earlier? Well, number one, they should never try to sell their own company. It's like saying, I need heart surgery. You're going to rip open your chest and take your heart out and <laughs> operate on your heart. You should never try to sell your own business. I mean, that's financial suicide. But I think the, the, the bigger picture, the bigger issue here is they're so busy working in their business rather than on their business. And they're so focused on the transactional versus transitional. And a lot of them, like I was, I just did a podcast and a gentleman has this big marketing company in Germany. And he goes, well, I'm never going to sell my company. He's probably, I don't know, 20, 26, 27 years old, 28. And I'm like, are you going to die one day? <laughs> you know? Everybody's going to pass away. We really have to think about planning the sale of our biggest asset, which is our business. But business owners look at their business not really as their biggest asset. They look at it as their baby. You know, this is my baby. I can't part with my baby. What am I going to do next? That's why in Exit Rich, we have an entire chapter dedicated to the seller sanity check. You know, when should you sell your business? And we take clients through these different exercises to get their mindset ready. Because if their mindset's ready, they'll sabotage a deal every time. They'll never move through with the actual sale of their business. So what are the major themes in the different chapters? What, what are some of the big things people are in for? So number one is, is how to plan your exit from day one of buying or starting a business called the STGPS exit model. It's an actual model <laughs> that I take clients through and help them plan for the sale of their business. I also partner with business owners, investing my money, time, energy, resources, and expertise, and put them in a build to sell model. So we have several like that right now. And my exit um, timeframe is typically three to five years. So that's one chapter. The other one is when should you sell? The seller sanity check. When you should not sell is when you have to. You don't want to sell during a catastrophic event. You don't want to sell during COVID if you can prevent it. You want to sell when your business is doing well and at the top of its game. Okay. And then the other thing that we talk about is the five types of buyers and what they look for and what their negotiating styles are and what their non-negotiables are. We also talk about the six P's and we're going to depth of each P and how to create those synergies in your business because buyers buy synergies. What are some uh, examples of some of those? So one example would be, let's say that, well, we sold a business that I'll give you a real story. We sold a business that appraised for $9.8 million. It was a manufacturing business in the oil industry. We had about 550 buyers. Now we did not wear our seller out with those buyers. We wore ourselves out. <laughs> <laughs> we narrowed it down to 12 buyers. So we got 12 LOIs. We found a strategic 
um, that was really, that had similar products and services, but different. This buyer had a contract. So they had customer, they had customer concentration, which is scary. The most buyers, 65% of their revenue was tied up in the BP contract. So that was scare most people, but this buyer was very interested because they've been trying to get into BP and never could get their products and services in the door. So they were willing to pay more for that BP contract. So they ended up paying $15 million for 70% of the company. And I have to check on the wall. <laughs> so that's the kind of synergies we try to identify with our buyers, you know, what they're looking for, what they're willing to pay more for. Plus, we also want to identify with our buyers, you know, if they buy this company, this manufacturing company, they might not need this distribution that this company has because they already have distribution all over the United States. So you can cut out the distribution, you can cut some of the overhead. And really quadruple, double quadruple the EBITDA from the moment that you take over the company, right? So we want to look at economy of skills. We want to look at synergies. We want to look at, you know, can they increase the EBITDA from day one of taking over the business? So when you think about, when you think about people who are telling themselves, oh, 10 years or oh, five years, but then you ask them two years later and it's still five years away, or you ask them four years later, it's still 10 years away. That's, um, that, <laughs> go ahead. Um, how can you, I mean, to me, it feels like it's easy for people to have their identity wrapped up in their business. And when you sound exit, it's like, what am I going to do afterwards? I, I, you know, you hear so many stories about owners who either they regret the sale because they realize had I prepared a little earlier, I could have gotten a lot more that for my life's work, that would be, that would have been nicer. And the other ones are like, oh, I'm going to golf. And it's like, well, three months straight of golfing every day gets old eventually. I'm like, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And they haven't actually planned moving on to what adventure with life. Do you see that or, or do you see it differently? I see it. Absolutely. Everything you just said. And the reoccurring theme there was plan, <laughs> plan. They don't plan for their exit. They don't plan for their beginning, you know? And when we walk sellers through the seller sanity check in my book, Exit Rich, and also with my clients, one of the biggest things I do is plan, is help them get crystal clear on, okay, we sell this business. What are you doing after this? You know, it's kind of like the empty nesters syndrome. When all the kids leave home, the mom and dad look at each other and go, oh, what are we going to do? Do we want to stay married? <laughs> oh, yeah, downsize our house. What are we doing? You know, so I, I'll give you a perfect example. I had a manufacturing company. I saw a lot of manufacturing. I had a manufacturing business I was selling. I bought a husband and wife owned it, bought them three LOIs. Letter of intents. All great. All met their price and their terms requirement. They kept turning it down for different reasons. And so I said, listen, guys, I, I'm not going to keep bringing you more LOIs. I'm going to take this off the market. You need to go do some soul searching, figure out what you want to do next. And about two weeks, two, three weeks later, they came back to me and said, okay, we figured it out. And I said, what? They said, we want to do a bed and breakfast. We want to take the proceeds of the sale and buy or start a bed and breakfast. And I said, well, buy one, don't start one. <laughs> so, and I said, why a bed and breakfast? And they said, we've always been passionate about bed and breakfasts. You know, we would travel back before we had the business, we would travel around and stay at bed and breakfasts. We never stayed at a hotel. And that's what happens. I mean, business owners get so busy and running their business. They get so busy tending to their family that they forgot what they like to do. They forgot what they were once passionate about. They forgot what gets them you know, it gets their juices flowing, right? So you really got to take some time and do some soul searching and figure out what that is. Because if you don't, seller's remorse will set in, you'll sabotage a deal. And then I'll be very upset with you. 
<laughs> so I take them through this, this process and I also take them through the process because they'll come to me and say, well, I need $20 million to sell my business. I'm like, great. How'd you come up with that number? Is that what your business is worth? <laughs> and are even as like 200,000. And um, they'll be like, no, that's what I need to retire on. So I sit down with them and go through, what do you need a month? What do you need a year? What's your life expectancy? Who's your heirs, you know? And then I prioritize what's important to them. Because you know what, Jess, it's not always about the money. You think that a lot of people, a lot of business owners will say it's about the money. You know, I want, I want price, price, price. No, they'll say, I want my, my employees taken care of. These people have been with me since day one. I want to make sure my people are taken care of. Or I want to make sure my clients are taken care of. This client likes this, this client likes this. Or they'll say, I want to make sure somebody grows my legacy. So it's very important to prioritize because if employees is number one to them, I'm not going to bring a, a buyer and it's going to dismantle their company. You know, I know my totally. buyers. I have over 20,000 buyers. Now, I don't know all of them, obviously, but I know what the criteria is. What What are the buyers you find yourself working with the most? What is oh, it? Oh, private, equi private equity, strategic competitors, sophisticated. I don't work too much for first times anymore. I have. I've had my feel. <laughs> and I don't work a lot. I do work with turnaround specialists, especially if they want to do a roll-up and buy a bunch of restaurants and do a roll-up and stuff like that. I do have turnaround specialists that I'll call and say, hey, I got some distressed assets. Do you want it? or not. And they're like, well, aren't you taking it? So I do do that. But mostly it's private equity groups and, you know, competitors slash strategic or a serial entrepreneur. I mean, we got serial entrepreneurs, Jess, that will call me up all the time and say, Michelle, what you got? What you got? What you got? And we put people on our email blast, email list. And, you know, I've got one that pretty much gives me an offer on anything, everything, <laughs> everything with an EBITDA over a million dollars. And that's, and that's the secret sauce there, right? You know, that's that's like the secret sauce is get your EBITDA over a million dollars. Because once you do that, we're going to have so many different buyers, you know, over a million dollars. Like I said, I don't know if I said this before, but there's there's more buyers for good businesses than there are good businesses to buy. Yeah, there's so many questions I have. When you look at the larger sales you've been a part of, you know, you talked about one at 75 million or something like this. What are, what are some of the things that are different that maybe people don't expect when you start, when you start becoming more of like, you know, that, that type of size of a sale? What do you mean? Some things that you don't expect like buyers or no. what? Sellers. So sellers, sellers who are selling, yeah. Sellers who are selling, you know, a, a much more attractive business to say larger private equity, right? Cause you, you potentially start to make a difference on their portfolio, right? Sure. What's that process like different over $50 million in your, in your opinion? There's a lot more due diligence typically. There's a lot more due diligence. Believe it or not, the time frame is the same, if not quicker, because some of these private equity groups and these strategics and competitors, they make decisions pretty quickly, you know, but there might be a higher level, more due diligence, a bigger team. They want audited financials and you'd be surprised. There's companies over $50 million that don't have audited financials. So that's a big thing we're working on right now with a client we're selling for $70 million, no audited financials, you know, and then their policy and procedure manuals are lacking. So the yeah. first thing, when we go in and look at a business to sell, we look at all of those, I call them the six Ps. We look at all of those things to make sure that their business is running all six cylinders, because if not, the deal is going to fall apart in due diligence. If the non-competes are not there, if the contracts are not transferable, if we don't have the policies and procedures in place, if we don't have audited financials, <laughs> you know, that's going to, it's going to be a big deal in due diligence. You know, so on, on the other end of the scale, up at the larger end, you know, one of my clients right now, 
they I, I helped them with integrations on their merger five years ago. They just did a merger again two weeks ago. Now they're eleven billion dollar a year company. Okay, awesome. And and there can be such an upset in the employee base when you think about advising entrepreneurs of how to look at taking care of employees and so that so that a buyer can feel like the top talent's actually going to stay. What, what kind of advice do you have? Yeah, so that's where it kind of gets tricky because we don't really want we don't want anybody to know that the business is for sale and unless it's that CFO, right? The CFO has to know. So typically the CFO, not the CEO, we typically want to keep it to the CFO, their attorney, their um, CPA, you know, their team of experts. We really don't want the employees to know until we get a lot closer, until due diligence has been signed off on, and then we might start telling key employees. But it just really depends upon the relationship relationship between the owner and employees, you know, sometimes there'll be a severance package, not severance package, long, there'll be a, a, thank you. <laughs> you know, so there'll be money there, you know, to keep to keep these people on, but there'll be something to entice them. And a lot of times the owner staying on the owner is staying on for two to three years, almost in every single deal that we do, the owner is staying on for at least a year, at least a year, this deal that we're doing right now for 70 million, the owner wants to stay on. The owner really wants to grow the business with the new owners because they feel like they've gone as far as they can go. You know, they have over $12 million in EBITDA this year, and they feel like they've gone as far as they can go, or last year, I should say. No, it, I'm it, forgetting we're in the first month of 2021. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, one, one of my buddies, same thing. Like he 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 propped up a little company, ramped ramped it up in like 18 months. And sold it to this billionaire for a couple million bucks because, because of the resources that he would get to actually accomplish the mission he wanted. And he just wanted to take some money off the table. And, and like that, that was enough for him. And he's got this great, great compensation package. And he stayed, uh, he stayed locked in and he stayed because he actually believes in what he's doing. And he just wanted to do it, wanted to get some money off the table, wanted to give a, I mean, the rate of return to his investors by doing that zero to 2 million in, in a year mm-hmm. and a half. Do you know what I mean? Like that's a great yeah. reputation builder for whatever he does do next. Did he later. keep equity? Did he retain equity? Uh, I think this one he he sold out completely. But yeah. but a different one of my a different friend guy we had on the show he he sold he sold seventy five percent of the business and and let that private equity firm put in the cash and ramped up and and the second sale they sold it for three hundred fifty million yeah. and the twenty five percent he let, he retained was worth much more than the seventy five percent he sold yeah. in the first place. That's almost every single one of our deals. I would say within the last few years, it's all been buying 70%, 80%, 90%. You know, one deal I think was 60%. And that's kind of the buyer's preference as well. In most cases, now there's some private equity groups that don't want to do that. They want to buy 100%. But in most cases, they're, they're buying 70 or 80. They want to keep the owner on. And they want the owner to retain equity and have skin in the game. So my next question there is when you think about the stats, you look at how many strategics the the acquisition, at least in like Fortune 500 corporate America, the the acquisition ends up losing money. You know, the the strategic they buy a well-oiled machine and then they change it and it doesn't make as much as it used to, right? <laughs> so in that case, where the CEO is staying on, and even if it's you know one to three years or something, how do you help prepare them for like for disappointment? Like you're not going to get to make the decisions anymore. They're going to screw up some things with your baby. 
That's the toughest thing. That really is the hardest thing because even with a $70 million company, the owner is still very tied to it. The owner has all the relationships, all the relationships with the clients. The owner works probably 80 hours a week, you know? The owner is never home. And his business is his baby. And he's like, oh, no problem. I can work for the new owner. I'm like, yes, until you do it. You know, it's easy to say that you can do it because you are used to calling all the shots. You're used to that. So I just, you know, again, take them through a process, trying to get them comfortable with that. But, you know, like the manufacturing company I told you about, that the, the buyer bought 70% of it. It was two owners. One retired out because he's like in his 80s. So we retired him out. The other one, I think, was in his 60s. And he's like, Michelle, I've done it all. I'm okay with not being the boss. I don't have to call all the shots. He said, my partner made a lot of the decisions anyway, you know, and it was fine. He said, I don't have to be the one making all the decisions. So it really depends upon the age. It depends upon the mindset. It depends upon, you know, are they partners and they're used to, you know, taking taking directions or instructions from somebody else. It just really depends upon where they're coming from. But I, I go through the process with them. I also have other people that I work with that, you know, ha- that get involved when need be for the cultural part with the with the employees, you know, once the employees are introduced to, to try to integrate those cultures together as well. So my main business is our is our private equity real estate, you know, our, our buying commercial real estate building. But I'm like, I have too much ADD. I'm always like sticking my nose into our other businesses, right? That we own. And yeah, you have a hard time uh, sitting still. I can see that. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> um, at, at Mylan Advisors, I, I still do some of the CEO strategy advisor work, right? So one of my clients last year, we, we helped him think through selling his tech company. And he, again, he took, he didn't, it wasn't a complete sell. It just took a, a big chunk off the table. Right. Right. And very intelligent guy. I mean, like sharp. Okay. And made it in corporate America kind of style before he built this, came out, became an entrepreneur, built the, the tech side of things. And I, I was just so surprised, but I realized I shouldn't be of how much he's thinking in terms of his interest. And we had these great conversations and credit to him, very humble of like rethinking everything through the buyer's perspective. But, you know, I think all of us, we get so close to our baby. Do you have any tips on becoming more objective? And like, does the book have questions of like rethinking life through the buyer's eyes? It really does. I mean, a wholesaler sanity check is all about looking at things through the buyer's eyes. Plus we have, I don't think I've dedicated a whole chapter to it, but I have information in there. There are evaluations because this is where there's always a huge gap, right? In evaluation. The, the, the owner thinks that their baby is the prettiest baby ever. And, you know, it's my job to tell you, your baby's not so pretty. In fact, your baby's kind of ugly and you need to look at it through the buyer's perspective. So I really do walk my sellers through the buyer's sanity check, what the buyers look for, how the buyers evaluate businesses. We do this in the book. I do this with my clients constantly that you have to put, especially when they come to me and they say, I want to sell for $10 million and you're even us 50,000. So we really got to explain to them. Well, hey, would you buy this business and pay $10 million to get $50,000 in EBITDA? Of course not. You know, so we absolutely have to do that. There's no way that we would be able to sell over a thousand businesses and not do that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> what's funny is our longest running client on the, for our consulting firm is a friend of mine. I went to art school with 20 something years ago. Okay. You went to she art school. <laughs> yeah. I'm an art school cool. dropout who got into finance. So, so she's been on the, she's been on the show. Her name's Amy Seller and she's a great entrepreneur, but 
she'd gone out to San Francisco, worked for this super fancy design agency doing, doing work for, you know, big fortune 500 clients. Right. And basically running the Western half of the country for the firm based out East. And she's kind of realizing like, I'm doing the, I'm doing all the job. Like maybe I should just own this thing. Right. So the owner offers to sell here, offers to sell her the West coast office. Right. And she knows that I'm a finance guy and been in M&A. So we're, we're talking this through. And she's like trying to decide, do I buy it? Do, you know, do I basically take on millions of dollars of debt and buy this? Or do I start my own? And we just walked through this process of like, hey, let's, how would Warren Buffett look at this? What is the reliable income stream that you're buying? Mm-hmm. And how much are you paying for that income stream? And we did all this math and these guys- And is it, and is it, sta- is it, is it what's the stability of that income stream, yeah, right? Yeah, how reliable is that income stream is a huge factor, right? Right. And she ended up, she ended up going back to them. They kind of been bullying her. I really do not have a lot of respect for those guys. They kind of been bullying her on some things and thinking they were going to pull the wool over her eyes. She came back with some intelligent questions and like really came to the conclusion, like they really don't have that much reliability in this income stream they're offering me. And she, you know, to, to her credit, guts wise, she starts her own, it's called Big Monocle. And she's made millions of dollars with the biggest, you know, the biggest tech clients you can think of that a dream for agencies to have is she built herself, but going through that process of like, would I buy this? And in, in her case, it's not right. So my, my question along with those lines is when you think about loss aversion, like there's all these Stanford university studies of like people hate losing more than they like winning. Right. Yeah. And <laughs> when we, have, when we, yeah, when we know, when we know our baby and it means so much to us personally, the just human psychology of overvaluing what we've got, or at least valuing it so much more to us than to someone else. You talked about one tool, which I think is so helpful of the, what would you, you know, you're about to have a whole bunch of cash. Would you go buy something at that rate of return? <laughs> right. What, any, any other tips or tricks to so, help meet in the middle with a, with, a, with a buyer? Yeah. I mean, so we walk them through, you know, how we evaluate a business, the different methods that we use, you know, so we'll walk them through the industry approach. We'll show them industry standards. We'll walk them through the income approach, the market approach, the discounted cash flow. We'll walk them through all this. We'll walk them through the six P's and how we came up with it. And then we'll just, when we start showing them comps of other sold businesses and what they sold for, they kind of start getting it. They really do. Because they'll come back to me and I'll say, I didn't think that, you know, now I'm realizing I'm unrealistic. And I always tell them, you know, the hardest part of my job is telling you your your baby's not as pretty as you think it is. But I just, you know, they typically will either, you know, say, look, this is not the right time for me to sell. What do you recommend? What do I do? How do I increase the value? Or, okay, let's reduce the price. I can't hold on for these reasons. And, you know, what's a realistic evaluation? I will never take a business that's overpriced. That's what other brokers do. (laughs) I don't do that. If my clients are not realistic, I don't take the engagement. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, it's got to be so much great working with your buyer community by having that discipline. Well, and I'm not going to do it because a, I'm not going to, I'm not going to change my statistics. And number, and number two, I don't want to work on something that I don't think I can sell. And it's not my, it's not the buyer's job to educate my seller. It's my job to educate my seller. So I think there's a huge lack of education in the M&A space and in the, in the brokerage community. And I think it just really all comes down to, 
you know, take them through the processes, asking a series of questions, finding out what's the most important to them and educating them on how the buyers look at things and how the buyer is going to see their business and what the buyer is going to look at in their business. I mean, we go through everything. Like, I want to know what's the hair on this deal? What's the skeletons in this closet? Because I guarantee you no deal is clean. <laughs> and I want to know all that stuff in front because I'm going to talk about all that stuff in front. And I was just going to say, I also sit there and work with my clients and make sure that we can get their business operating all six cylinders. Because if we can get their business operating and build a proper infrastructure, then we'll be able to bring more buyers who will pay more money for their business. Ah, makes so much sense. When you talk about comps, for instance, you know, a lot of people complain about how opaque the lower middle market can be, right? As far as comps, like, are you looking at tombstones of other agencies or like where, where can people, if people are browsing stays, they're not quite ready to call you yet. Where can start, where can people start looking for comps? Well, they can go look for market comps. So there's market comps or sold comps. So market comps is they can go on business by sell. They can go on businessfocus.net. They can go to Axio. They can go to all these different platforms and look for what businesses are on the market for. That tells you a little bit, doesn't tell you a lot. We go and we pull sold comps, what businesses actually sold for. Those are much more difficult to get for private companies because private companies do not have to make this public. So it's much more difficult. But for market comps, it's pretty easy. But sure. if you're trying to that's find- just That's just an asking price, right? Yeah, but if you're trying to find information on a 70, $80 million company, you're not going to get too much information from Biz by Sell because they specialize in the smaller companies. You need to go to Axio. You can go to Stats, You can go to BRG. You can go to some different resources that we use. And we have lots of different resources that we use to get those sold comps. Yeah. yeah. And are, are those sold comps, like, do you pay to subscribe to that or you can we get do. them if you know we where pay. to look them? We pay. We yeah. pay to subscribe. You either, you, we either have to send over comps of businesses we sold and then we'll get like some free comps, but mostly we're subscribing. So we do both. Yeah. yeah. We should, we should have they're, our team. They're in business to make money. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, right? We're not going to give away stuff for free. So the next biggest thing I'm, I'm interested in your opinion about is, whether I'm talking to clients, whether I'm talking to friends with, you know, people on the podcast that, you know, we're having the private conversation offline and I'm talking about like, well, what are you doing? Where are you going with this? What, you know, right. And if it ever comes around to sale or we're talking about exits or selling and I start talking to them about this idea of like, you know, well, what's the system that exists after you're gone? That is something that I find, like, I just don't find that many owner independent businesses, you know, like they do, do you have any help for people who want to rethink oh yeah, I've been so excited to be a big deal and have grown this company, but that actually makes my business worth less because if the business loses me, they lost a lot of value. When it comes to like helping business owners start to transition to, you know, a system that can run without them, or preferably a system that could grow without them. Like, isn't that what a buyer would love to buy? Absolutely. How do you help them with that? Well, first of all, there's not a lot of buyers out there for jobs. <laughs> buyers don't buy jobs. They buy businesses. So first and foremost, I explained to an owner how important it is to create that business that can work without you. It's got to be sustainable. It can't, you cannot be the business. If you're the business, your business is not sellable. I'll give you examples. You already know this. A dental practice. You know, we have a dental practice that's trying to sell right now. One dentist, six hyg dental hygienists. It's not sellable. The only way that I can sell that business is you go get some associates and train them for a while and then come back to me 
or we sell it and the purchase price is going to be carved out and tied to you staying on for two to three years. That's the only way it's going to sell. Same thing with a chiropractor. Same thing with all kinds of different businesses. You know, so many businesses are tied to the owner. The relationships are with the owner. Oh, we have a manufacturing company, a fabrication manufacturing company we're trying to sell right now. Two partners, been in business 35 years. Four employees. All the data is in their heads. All the data is in their heads. And they're like 70 years old. You know, that company is very difficult, not impossible to sell. I have, so another you... fabrica- well, I have another fabrication company that's interested, but it's been very difficult. But I was able to find another fabrication company that I think we're going to be able to, to merge the two together. But- so what's your, what's your first step in helping them want to start documenting everything. That's well, been, that's, that's well. My first sense. step, my first step is get is to get them to focus on their strengths and hire their weaknesses. That's okay. my first step. You don't build a business; you build people, and people build a business. That's okay. step one. Because otherwise, they're never going to write it all down because they're too busy doing everything. You know, I partnered with a graphics company. A graphics company called me a few years ago, and the gentleman was like in tears, and he got me on the phone. And you don't always get me when you call my office, but something told me that day talk to this gentleman. Picked up the phone, and he was like in tears. He's like. I can't do this anymore. It's me, my wife, have one employee. They have a graphics company and they specialize in vehicle wraps for first responders. So all the police cars, ambulance, fire trucks, that's what they do. That's their core competency. And he says, you know, we, we got my wife and I are working like 14, 16 hours a day. We're about to kill each other. We're going to get divorced. I'm about to lose my family home. And we're firing an employee. It sounds like a country Western song, right? <laughs> so the one employee, well, they didn't fire their employee. They told him they were going to close or shut down. And then he says to me, but we have a product that's unparalleled in the industry and our art is the best. We're turning down 6,000 clients a year. And I went just like you did. <laughs> I went ding, 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 ding. Are you kidding me? And I said, we're not selling. And he says to me, I don't have the core competency to grow this business to the next level. I just can't do it. And I says, well, we're not selling your company. He goes, well, what are you going to do? And I said, this is your lucky day. Go get a lotto ticket right now. Because if you would have got anybody else that would try to put it on the market. I said, no, I'm going to do my due diligence. I'm going to meet with you. I flew to Texas, met with him and I'm partnered with them. So I took him out of there. They had a home office on their property. I took him out of that. Got a 7,000 square foot building, hired 25 employees, COO, and created a business. All this data, though, is still in Now, he's got a lot of it documented now. We have policies, we have procedures, we have SOPs, we have all of that. But there's still a lot in this man's head. And he's the owner, him and his wife. And I'm like, listen, if I could just take a hard drive and back it up to your head, plug it into your head, I could get the rest out of there. But he was so busy working in the business, he had no time to document it. And now he does. I just hired him a human resources person, and we're going to exit this business in three years for probably about $20 million to $30 million. And, you know, perfect story. And now let me tell you something. This guy does have the business acumen. You know, he has a business document. He's, he comes up with all these wonderful, great ideas that really is catapulting us to the next level. But the problem is when you're in the middle of the chaos, you know, it's hard to see the forest through the trees. When you're in the fog, it's foggy, right? So that's a perfect example is saying, come on, we have to hire your, your weaknesses and let you focus on your strengths. I love that so much. I, like, <laughs> it makes me think about Dan Sullivan's book, Who Not How, about yeah, like quit thinking how you're going to do something and think about who can do this for us, right? It's who, it's the who, it's the who. <laughs> makes me think about that Gina Wickman, Mark Winter's book, Rocket Fuel, about like, yep. hey, you're the visionary with all the crazy ideas. Quit pretending you're good at paperwork. Like, you're not a lesser person because you can't spell things, Jess. <laughs> 
like I know. <laughs> right so I, so I love that so much you know i think about that book strength finders which i feel like is like i feel like the gospel of strength strength finders from gallup is like do you know this book where you like take a test? It tells you what you're good at. Have you heard of this one? I don't know the book, but I have tests in my company. So everybody that comes through here has to okay. take several tests you, and it tells you what this. you're good at and what you should be doing. Okay. You've got to add this book to your list. It's by Gallup. It's great. Okay. And the, the premise is like, Hey, Michael Jordan didn't make a lot of money playing baseball. Wouldn't it be great to figure out what your basketball is and double down on that? You right. know? And right. it's, it's excellent. And what's funny is I hadn't thought about it for the sale, the way that you're describing it. And it makes tons of sense Yeah, because so if they're ever going to work on their business and make it sellable, they've got to quit. They've got to quit doing invoicing or like how many like ADD entrepreneurs get the books, all of them, 99.7%. You know what they were doing? They were actually shoving invoices in the cabinet at their home office. They were shoving invoices in the cabinet. Nobody was billing. Nobody was collecting. You know, and it's just crazy, but you're, you're right. They're not good at it. And here's the other problem with that. They're not good at it. So they point somebody else to do it, but then they put in no checks and balances and then they trust, but they don't verify. They don't expect inspect what they expect. So guess what happens? They get embezzled and they wonder why. Yeah, it's like that Michael Gerber book, the e-myth, right? Yeah. I love Michael. Gerber. Well, I'm so glad I get to quit doing this and they don't even check them. But like, you think about it, like, do you think Michael Jordan feels bad if he's not like an expert gardener? No, he pays for that. Do you mean like, yeah. it's a great skill. It may not be his. He doesn't feel bad about himself that he's not a gardener. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I know, exactly. So focus on your strengths. And that's what I tell my clients. You know, I talk about people, which is the first P that, that we try to get our clients to focus on is people. And you always got to ask the who question. Who deals with customer service? Who deals with legal? Who deals with accounting? Who deals with transportation, logistics, manufacturing, environmental? The clue is you should never be next to the who. <laughs> and so when I started doing that for this graphics company, a light bulb went off in their head. They're like, oh, okay, we get it now. But, you know, it, took, it still took me time to get them comfortable with being uncomfortable and letting go of the control. Because in order to grow, you have to let go of the control. And you're never going to grow the company bigger than the owners. You got to grow the owners too. You can't just grow the company. You got to grow their personal development because otherwise you're not, they're, they're going to stop it. Oh, that's such a good point. Okay. I know we're almost out of time. I want to ask one more question. There's been so many family offices starting to go after deals that used to be just private equity funds. You know, do you have any advice or, or do you think about things differently at all when working with a family office instead of a traditional financial buyer? Not really. Not really. It's not that. I mean, you know, it's, it's everything else. We want to know what's your, what's your new portfolio? You know, what are you looking for? How many deals have you looked at this year? Why haven't you pulled the trigger? I mean, it's the same old thing. You know, we want to know what are they trying to accomplish? What are they trying? It's like with a, with a private equity group. We want to know, is this a platform? Is this an add-on? If it's a platform, then what are you going to do with the current business? Are you going to dismantle it? Are you going to keep it? You know, it's really not really. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we covered a lot of topics. You get interviewed a lot. What's a question that you don't get asked that, that you would like to answer? I've been on like 150 interviews. So I'm trying, I don't know. <laughs> you can ask me where to get my book. If people want to connect with you, if they want to follow you, they want to get the book, will you tell them the websites and where to connect with you on social? Sure. So they can go to salotucker.com. All of my social is there. My phone number is there. Everything is on my website. And then they can also, or they can text me. They can text Michelle if you want like everything in one place. You can text Michelle to 888-526-5750. 
and just text Michelle or text Exit Rich and everything is right there at your fingertips. And Let's then, do that number one more time. Okay, so that's 888-526-5750. Okay. And That's then they can, they can go get Exit Rich. Are you ready for me to tell them how to get Exit Rich? Yeah. So they can go to ExitRichBook.com and buy the book. We're in the middle of pre-sale, so go buy it now. And we have a great offer for pre-sale. So it's $24.79, which is less than Amazon. You will receive the immediate download today. So you don't have to wait for the book to come out. We'll email you the digital download. And then we'll send a hardcover to your doorstep. Plus you get a lifetime membership into Exit Rich Book Club where it's video training. I mean, doing, you know, going talking about different strategies and techniques and different things you should be doing in your business. But we also have documents. So many business owners like Michelle, I've never seen an organizational chart or a non-complete or an employee handbook or business owners will be like, what does an LOI look like? So we have sample LOI, sample purchase agreements. We have closing docs. Every document you need to run your business or sell a business, we pretty much have. If we don't, we'll load it in there for you, for your review and your download. I mean, that's worth thousands upon thousands of dollars because you know you were an M&A. You know how much this documentation costs. And then we also are giving- Go ask your lawyer. Go ask your lawyer what it would cost. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, because they charge for, I think they charge for letter. (laughs) And then we give a 30-day membership in the club CEOs, which is a- uh, mastermind that I created of entrepreneurs where we do hot seats and Q and A's and things like that. I didn't realize you had all that. That is excellent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have that in a bag of chips. <laughs> so much more. Plus you're an elector and I are doing masterminds together. And if you're really interested, like you want to donate books or buy for a group of people, if you go on exitrichbook.com, we have where you can buy in bulk. So if you buy 10 books, you get this 25 books, you get this. So I have a blueprint. I have a build to sell blueprint. Um, online blueprint that we're going to be giving away. Sharon has a money masters blueprint, online blueprint that she's going to be giving away. Plus we even are doing a retreat at her ranch in Arizona. How fun. Yeah. Well, exitrichbook.com. I'm looking at it now. Great website, by the way, design wise. So let's end with this. If you had to do it over again, what's, what's some advice you'd give a younger version of yourself? So I've been asked that question quite a bit. I think, you know, the biggest advice I would give to my younger self you know, 20, whatever is do things earlier, you know, get a mentor earlier. I didn't really start working with anybody, mentor, anything like that until maybe 2011, 2012. You know, if I did it much earlier, I might be running, I might be the president of the United States. (laughs) So get it early, do things earlier and really think about what you're doing and the consequences that that might have. Don't just Look for instant gratification, you know, and don't just think about the moment or what you're doing today or tonight. Think about the long term, you know, what you want to do in five years, what you want to do in 10 years, 15 years. And really, you know, your network, your network, your network is your net worth. So hang around. If you want to be successful, hang around successful people. You want to be rich, hang around rich people. You want to be broke. How do you think I wanted you on this podcast? So I could hang out with you. (laughs) So, and I, I would just, you know. I, I started some of those things later and I would have started those earlier, yeah. you know, but I think that you should always align yourself with an expert and, you know, because they're get somebody who's already done it. Somebody who's been there. Stop asking people who have never done it before. Don't get advice from the people who would want to do it, but never have get the advice from people who have been down the road. You want to travel because then your path will be much shorter. I think it's great advice. Yeah. Well, everybody, please go check out Michelle's book and, and thanks for making time for the show here. Thank you so much. We'll have to have you on my show after the book launch. <laughs> have you right. 
Thank you. Okay, it was a bye. pleasure. I appreciate your time.